Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Media Voices. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And this season we are doing deep dives into some of the biggest trends, tools and tech that has affected publishers over the past 12 months as part of our annual Media Moments 2023 report. That is coming early December. You can pre-register for that at voices.media slash mm23. Um, so this episode we're going to focus on podcasts. It's one we've been covering for some years now. It's kind of been a bit of a mixed year for the industry and we'll talk about some of the trends later on. Um, and this week we are joined by Chris Stone, who leads on podcasts, video and audience for The New Statesman, which, if you don't know, and you probably do, is a leading politics and culture publication in the UK. Hello, Chris. Hello. <laughs> we'll replace one Chris with the other. Makes it easier. <laughs> I'm the, uh, the, the beta Chris, the secondary Chris. <laughs> so, I mean, Chris, you've, you've been at The New Statesman um, heading up their podcast for a couple of years now. And what's kind of stood out particularly is in terms of podcasting trends for you over the past 12 months? Because it's, it's kind of been a, a lot of chop and change at the New Statesman. It has, yeah. Um, we've we've had an interesting 12 months. Industry-wide, I think the trends that I've been paying most attention to have been um, what the platforms are up to. I think there's been some very interesting moves by Spotify and now YouTube to sort of try and occupy territory um, in the podcasting space. And uh, that has been interesting to watch and also um, commercially uh, valuable to pay attention to because um, they all have their different routes to audience and uh, yeah that's that's been an interesting trend to watch and with that we've seen kind of a change in audience consumption habits which includes my third point um, the move from podcasts into the video space which has been something of a contentious talking point <laughs> Um, and I'm sure we'll get on to more of that later. But I'm I'm broadly an advocate of this for the for the correct for the correct podcasts. Um, but I appreciate it's not the thing kind of thing that every publisher is going to want to be getting into. Um, but that's definitely something that I've been leaning into quite hard at the New Statesman. I've got a question for you before we get deeply into the podcast thing. You you're pretty active on LinkedIn, and you hmm. share a lot of room background information what mm. why do you do that why do you spend your time sharing like that <laughs> I, I, that's not well, you know that's i'm not i'm not criticizing you at all i love it i absolutely yeah. love it but i'm just wondering what's your motivation the podcasting space as you know is a tremendously collaborative space the the podcasting community in terms of creators is tremendously collaborative. Um, I find that the publishing industry historically is largely less so. Um, and I've been learning a lot from creators, perhaps more than publishers sometimes okay. in terms of what we're, uh, what we're doing with podcasts and video. And I guess my motivation is to try and emulate some of that um, spirit of collaboration and transparency and openness uh, within the publishing community that I've seen being so successful and frankly pleasant to be around in the sort of creator community. Well, I mean, we love it. That's that's what we're all about. So more power to you. <laughs> I just hope it doesn't get me into trouble. Yeah, it's always that. <laughs> um, Chris, one of the things you mentioned in the 
in the first bit is you said about the cha- about people shifting to Spotify and YouTube. Is that people are sort of cha- switching up from podcast apps they maybe used to listen to and going to YouTube and Spotify, or is that is that kind of a new area of listeners that people who just chill out on YouTube are finding podcasts on there? Yeah, maybe my characterization is wrong there. I'm not sure that shifting is the right word, but there's definitely audience growth on Spotify and YouTube. Um, you know, I mean, we still see about 60 to 65% of our listeners coming through Apple Podcasts. Um, but Spotify is definitely a growing audience base for us. And now YouTube, um, the, the, the views that we're getting on YouTube to our podcast content is greater than the number of downloads that we're getting on podcast platforms. So YouTube has effectively doubled, more than doubled our listenership. I, I think that must be new audiences. It's really hard to tell, right? But I think they must be new audiences because otherwise you'd see the number go down on one side and up on the other. But it's not. It's going, it's staying the same or going up on the podcast platforms and it's going up significantly on YouTube, for example, and it's going up on Spotify. So yeah, it must be new audiences. Maybe shifting is wrong. Which is like that's a good thing for the for the podcasting community, right? That's that's new audiences coming to podcasts. But you've not just stuck a camera in front of people recording, right? You you've well, put some thought into with, it, but it wasn't very good. <laughs> well, yeah. I th- again yeah, <laughs> go back to LinkedIn, right? I saw a post the other day, <laughs> someone saying, you know, recording people sat with headphones sat around a mic is probably not the most interested thing in the world. Mm. You've thought about it. You, you haven't just done that. So it's evolved over time, right? So when I started at the New Statesman, um, they already had a podcast that was doing well. They didn't yet have any video. My background is from initially from broadcast and then from kind of publisher video. So I, I was doing video before I was doing podcasts. And at the New Statesman, it was, you know, here's a podcast. We don't yet have a video strategy. Can we do anything with that? And so to begin with, we were experimenting with what our video strategy should be. We produced a bunch of different content and put it on, um, used a a number of different platforms to see what worked. Um, And I was initially very sceptical about long-form interviews or long-form conversations on YouTube. Very sceptical. My sort of broadcast head was like, well, why would that be interesting? Where's the pictures? Um, But I was really quite surprised to see how popular some of our long-form conversations were very early on. And um, and over time, it became clear that although some of our kind of location features had done quite well in video, some of our um, explainers that we produced with kind of somebody talking to camera, explaining, the, uh, explaining a subject maybe based on an article that they'd written with... Um, b-roll and archive and stills and graphs and things to illustrate although some of those also did reasonably well the stuff that got the longest view through and the greatest traction was some of our interview content which really surprised me um that's partly i think because youtube rewards view through as as it, it takes that as a signal of audience satisfaction and therefore promotes that video to more audiences so that's one thing um as long as the content is compelling and drives that view through but 
when it came to deciding, okay, right, how are we going to make this strategy work kind of long term? Um, really, the deciding factor was this stuff's getting good view through and we're already producing all of this spoken word content in podcasts. Um, so let's bring the two together. And now, really, the podcasts are the spine of our audio and video strategy. We produce other video content around that, but the podcasts are like the spine of our audiovisual strategy. And what we've done is I've built a studio that is a hybrid podcast video studio and kind of baked video into the production process um, throughout. So we have a full-time podcast producer and a full-time video producer. They work together producing podcast content in multiple forms, so video and audio. Um, so yeah, so it's not just putting a camera in front of some people talking around uh, talking around a microphone. It is a broadcast studio that has you know a multiple camera setup with a vision mixer and lights and all the rest of it. So it's, it's taken a bit of effort to set it up, and it's been a quite a journey to get the YouTube traffic up from effectively zero to where it is now, which is uh, I think it's eighty six thousand subscribers at the moment. It's taken us kind of two years to get to that um but that growth is accelerating and i think will pay off in the long run but it is a kind of a, a long-term play do you think it helps having i don't know well-known politicians on the other end of those uh interviews or or cultural figures or or even people like amanda Iannucci or mm. or andrew marr do you think that makes a difference like properly yeah, well-known I mean, names yeah 100 percent hundred percent. Andrew is our most popular figure on YouTube by a long way. Um, the videos and podcast content that we make with him drives, has driven a lot of our growth. So like there is a testament there to the value of having known name talent, yeah. right? And that's, that's, um, that's an investment, you know, that, so for publishers like that is something that needs to be considered as a, an outlay at the start, right? But it's interesting that Andrew isn't the only thing driving traffic. He's, his his contributions have definitely been a significant driver in our growth and in the acceleration of our growth. But our most viewed video on YouTube is not an Andrew Marr piece. It's um, a piece that our business editor, Will Dunn, did about the great housing con in the UK. So, like, that is a sort of what you might see as a like a fairly esoteric subject but it impacts a lot of people and there's a load of interest on it on youtube and i guess we found a content gap there so 18 months ago youtube podcasts wasn't a thing it's kind mm. of something they've developed in response to the fact that podcasts are doing like weirdly well on the platform mm. have you noticed that there's been a change in what you've had to do as youtube have developed that podcast and i, th I think it's only just launched in the uk recently isn't it yeah a couple of days ago is, is there been a change in what they what they're looking for now that they've got that specific podcast um, area. Yeah, so so this for me this year has been has been sort of a game of trying to understand what YouTube were doing with their podcast platform because I was at events like the podcast <laughs> show. They were, I had um, uh, I had the YouTube MD talking about what they were going to be doing with with podcasts on YouTube, and it was the same at the podcast show last year as well. Actually, they. Um, they had a couple of sessions on YouTube and they were kind of teasing that they were going to do something. I'm not um, sure they've been quite sure what they're going to do with either for quite well, a long time. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm, 
it has been a little bit confusing trying to predict what the what the new feature was actually going to look like. But um, but Alison Lomax sort of teased it quite heavily at the podcast show last year and was encouraging podcast producers to kind of get involved with kind of putting their podcasts on YouTube. And and the, I think part of the reason it's confusing is because there was for a while, for me at least, I mean, I may have just completely missed the comms, but for me at least it was confusing to know whether YouTube were after audio podcasts that they would publish as an audio experience or whether they wanted us to continue making video podcasts. And I wasn't quite sure what this feature was going to be. So for a while we experimented with publishing our content as both video content and an audio-only experience. <clears throat> and that failed abysmally. That was a, that, I mean, it was a successful experiment because it proved what not to do, but um, it was, it, it absolutely killed our channel growth. We had, so by, by publishing effectively duplicate content, we were publishing the the less engaging audio only experience first by which i mean it was like a it was a the automatic output from acast so it was a an audiogram waveform and a frame of the new statesman podcast logo um not an engaging watch by any means we were publishing that first and then later because it took longer to make we were publishing the video content the video version of that and what would happen was the audio only piece would go out it wouldn't get much view through which the algorithm would take as a negative signal so it wouldn't promote it to as many people and then we publish the same content later in video and uh that would the algorithm presumably would look at that and go well i've already tried that content on these people and they didn't like it so i'm not gonna promote it as much so it like completely killed our our growth and there was a, a horrifying moment when I saw our subscriber count go into our subscriber growth go into negative numbers, and I thought, "Oh God, I've got to do something now." So we just swap, we just switched off the audio only thing, um, and it went and, and it went back up. And I actually <laughs> I put something on LinkedIn, and um, the lovely Sandy Wilhelm from YouTube got in touch and said, "Let's have a chat because I think <laughs> I think I need to clarify something." <laughs> and she explained to me that um, you. The, the new feature was going to have a toggle, the all-important toggle. You could toggle between watching it or listening to it, which is what is present now in YouTube Music. And it is a brilliant interface, and it's such a relief because you don't have to publish audio-only versions. You publish the video version, and the viewer or listener decides how they consume it, um, which is much better. And, and the minute we stopped doing the audio-only versions... Um, our growth returned to normal, and then Andrew Marr came back from holiday. And it accelerated. <laughs> God love Andrew. <laughs> You're never going on holiday again, Andrew. <laughs> uh, one of the things you've spoken about on LinkedIn, I, I kind of get the feeling the theme of this episode is follow Chris Stone on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, but you've you've spoken about consolidating all of the new statesman's podcasts into one podcast feed. And yeah. I would love to know how that's going for you because when I first read that, I I sort of I went, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> but then I actually know. thought about it. I thought actually probably logically there's there's like there's obviously there's some logic in it, but I I can see how that could potentially be both good and a bit risky for the brand. Yeah, um, yeah. I was really nervous about doing it because, like you, 
I'd spent the last couple of years going, it's all about the niche. It's all about the niche. And then we have these conversations about, well, what are we doing with our podcast and how do we maximize our listenership? And, um, you know, are these other, are these other sort of um, smaller podcasts giving us enough bang for our buck? And sort of a group of us internally kind of went through this process of looking at it and thought, well, we've got this, we've got this one podcast which is called the New Statesman Podcast, which has a very specific theme of covering UK uh, politics, so Westminster and uh, the devolved nation's politics. And our audience come to that for that reason. It drives like 80% of our listenership. To make one of those podcasts takes the same resource as to make a world review podcast which gets you know um it was getting maybe a quarter of the listenership could we be spending our resource better basically we're already doing two two additional podcasts what happens if we bring them all into one feed will our audience come with us and you know is is that a better reflection of the new statesman if it's called the new statesman podcast then surely our audience would tolerate some additional content from the new statesman i don't think that's quite the full like that's not quite the full picture um or like that's not quite the end of the thought process because we're still kind of working through it but um but i think what it's made me think is what it's what it's forced me to do is to think about what is the niche that we're appealing to is the niche uk politics is it a topical niche or is it a thematic niche or a tonal niche and I think all of those things are part of the picture. Um, and yes, UK politics is a large part of what the New Statesman covers. But what underpins everything that the New Statesman does is this idea of helping people understand the forces shaping the world. And UK politics, for people in the UK, is a big part of that. But there are other parts of that. How do we cover what's happening in Israel and Gaza? You know, well, we can help people understand the forces shaping the world by digging into what's happening in Israel and Gaza. And that deserves a home on the New Statesman podcast. And, and what we found is that our audience have stuck with us. So we're still, we're still ironing out some kinks. I think we need to be probably clearer with our audience about which episodes are which and when they can expect certain episodes. Yeah, I think we need to rework some of the formats to help them be more kind of of a piece. But overall, so far, as a sort of early stage of the experiment, our audience numbers, our downloads have gone up. Our average downloads per episode have decreased slightly, but the total number in a week or a month is up. Our average listen through has decreased slightly but that i think is because we haven't quite nailed the formats so the ones that talk about uk politics some of the big interviews some of the sort of more world shaping ideas conversations those have very high listen through 90 100 100 plus percent we get some sort of 106 percent which is weird um <laughs> 
But then the audio long reads, for example, have a lower listen through. So the question is, is that the right format for that feed? How do we do something else that serves the audience better at the weekend? There's still a process to be gone through. Overall, in terms of download numbers, it's successful. I think we can improve what we're offering to give better listener satisfaction. But like as a as a purely commercial experiment, it's worked well because the download numbers are up. That means more ad impressions. That means higher revenue. What I find really interesting about that is in a way, that's old school magazine thinking. Mm -hmm. Where you put every kind of story that is going to attract your audience into your publication. And as long as your cover story gets people to buy it, then the other stories to some readers will be insanely engaging and to others not so much. Mm. And it's that, it's that, it's almost a brand strategy, right? Rather mm -hmm. than a, an a, a, rather than a product strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good observation. Some of the conversations that we've been having internally are about how do we reflect the breadth of what the new Statesman covers in audio. So how do we make the feed reflective of yeah. the magazine, for example? And it's interesting for me, having come... So I was at the Evening Standard and at the Telegraph before this, which are very much about breaking news coverage. They're about the rolling daily news cycle. And they're generally... Certainly the Telegraph is you know, much bigger in terms of its audience, in terms of its scope, in terms of its staff, you know. And so it's got, if you were trying to make a feed that made the, tel that, that kind of reflected the breadth of output of the Telegraph, I, don't, I think you'd struggle because it's so broad. Also, what the Telegraph and the Evening Standard have both moved to a entirely digital first model, i.e. you know, the website and the digital output comes first and then the the print product is sort of informed by what's happening online as well. Now, the New Statesman, by being a magazine, and it is very much like the magazine, the physical magazine is still very much a big part of the identity of the New Statesman. Um, that sort of has affected the way that we think about the podcasts. So like the the thing really that drives the editorial decisions across the board is what does the premium print product do there is definitely you know a strategy around like the the website and digital and we publish articles in online that don't get published in the magazine we publish articles online first that then go in the magazine but like the 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 pinnacle is still the print product that's really interesting for for me as a as somebody on the sort of the audio and visual side of the digital proposition in that we are approaching it a bit more like the magazine and so when we're commissioning what goes into the podcasts increasingly I'm looking at what's being commissioned in the magazine and how can we reflect that rather than cherry picking from a smorgasbord of different things or, or working with a an individual desk on their particular podcast you know we're looking at kind of the this sort of the weekly cycle of the print product very closely. Once a magazine man, always a magazine man. <laughs> <laughs> is the platform revenue significant? And I use that so, word advisedly. 
mm-hmm. we cover our costs through platform revenues and by platform revenues i mean uh the money that we get from acast through ads and sponsorships and the money that we now get through youtube that kind of washes our face and then the profit comes from the uh, direct sales that our in-house team makes on stream we can't talk about anything in media these days without talking about AI. Um, there's been some sort of, there's been a few kind of podcast related to AI stories since the whole Joe Rogan, Steve Jobs interview thing. <laughs> yeah, AI is now sort of, they're talking about AI, AI guests that can learn and just sort of do podcasts for you or AI translations, which I think is slightly more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, are you worried about its potential impact on podcasts or do you think there are any sort of useful applications you might be looking at yourselves? Well, I mean, I'd love to know what you guys think. I'm I'm broadly a optimist, I think, when it comes to new technologies. I am seeing a lot of benefits from the automation that some of the new AI tools involve. I think, like, there's a difference, isn't there, between what we think of as artificial intelligence and what we think of as automation enabled by machine learning and no, things. 100%. So we use a number of automation tools in our production workflow speech to text edit from transcript uh, automated uh, the studio sound tool you know automated kind of sound improvement and you know all of that stuff very helpful and um the one that i love most particularly in terms of video production is autopod so um that is a, a an extension for adobe premiere that once you have your multiple so we we record on five cameras we bring the five cameras into adobe premiere you sync them all up and line them up and make sure they're okay and then you hit go and it does your vision mix for you in about 30 seconds and i every time i see it i get this like moment of glee i'm like (laughs) i've wasted hours of my life doing this and now there's a machine that does it for me um so yeah that's that's brilliant i like i love that so things like that I think, yeah, like wherever you can take the grunt work out of things so that you can focus on the stuff that the machines can't do. But would you have an AI Andrew Marr as a guest on your podcast? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It would be a gimmick or it would be really boring. Like I think, but this is the thing that AI can't do is human relationships, which Yet. is why I think, actually, well, yeah, which is why I think things like podcasts and events and newsletters and anything that involves kind of community building for those of us who work in those spaces i think we should be bracing for an opportunity of growth in those areas because those are the things that ai can't do it can pretend to sound like an author you know it can predict what uh what a, a news article about a football match should be like so so it is possible to flood the market with, you know, cheap content. And there probably will be a bunch of that that we need to filter out. That's no different from YouTube, for example, having to tweak their recommendations engine to focus on watch time so that people couldn't game the system by by making false content, right? Mm. So platforms are going to have to filter this stuff out. So yeah, like there is going to be a bunch of cheap crap that comes into the into the space that you have to kind of filter out yes there's things about um 
you know, misinformation and disinformation, um, generative images and video and stuff that you can't trust. We're going to have to figure that out. But yeah, for those of us that work in any space that involves building community, I think um, the next five years are potentially going to be quite a good opportunity for us. I think the big thing with any of that is to see it as, as you said, to see it as automation or see it as a tool that you can use to make mm. you better at what you've always mm. done. I think anyone that's looking at it as a shortcut or some kind of magic bullet, that's mm. when it gets scary. That's where the problems lie. Yeah, I agree. Particularly because, and our, our business editor, Will Dunn, is really good on this, particularly because if if you don't really understand what generative ai is you can mistake it for something it isn't right so it isn't intelligent what it is is a really good predictive text engine it can predict what a certain style of writing would be like what's the most likely word to appear after this previous word you know it can do that really well but it can't think it's not going to hack into a nuclear silo and blow up the world you know yet, yet. <laughs> um. <laughs> what about the ai translation and the potential to translate podcasts into other languages in the original podcaster's voice that's where i think the, the lines start getting really blurred <laughs> yeah. you know what that is just such bullshit because transcription software can't even figure out what words i'm saying never mind replicate my <laughs> voice <laughs> It might manage for Andrew Marr, though. Yeah, <laughs> it might do. I think it all depends on your content, doesn't it? It's like you need to set your your goals and your strategy and then decide on what the tactics are going to be that you use. And if translation is a, a tactic that can help you achieve your end, then brilliant. And if AI can help you with that, then brilliant. So one of the, I think one of the things that's becoming more and more popular with publishers as the tools improve and people like apple and spotify get a bit more friendly to third-party subscription tools is um paywall podcasts the economist have um in the last couple of weeks announced they're moving everything but their flagship podcast behind a paywall um i mean given that the new statesman is also quite heavy on its subscription strategy what are your thoughts on that yeah so the thing that has stopped me wanting to do um paid podcasts so far has been that to go through Apple or whatever you have previously had to offer a you know a premium experience using their tool on their platform and that hasn't plugged into um, your own paywall. As that changes, then the offering becomes a lot more interesting to publishers because like you know Substack is the same actually at the moment. We're we're having a live conversation about do we charge for newsletters on Substack when the person who subscribes via Substack is only getting the Substack subscription, they're not getting access to the rest of our content. How does that work? Same conversation. And we are now very interested in the new tools that enable you to connect a podcast subscription to your own paywall, because that then creates a whole, an entire funnel in audio. And that is really interesting. And it makes it makes it possible for podcasts to be a much more integrated part of your subscription strategy. I think there's a, you know, I think getting, trying to get people who listen to a podcast to then subscribe to another content type is quite challenging. So if you're a podcast listener, 
you're not necessarily going to want to buy a print product. You're not necessarily going to want to subscribe to read the articles online. You have already demonstrated that you enjoy listening to content rather than reading it, for example, or as well as reading it. But, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, your, your behavior is that you like to listen to stuff. If our paywall is only for the digital stuff, for the, for the, for the print or the, for the website, that's a bit of a, a leap to ask somebody to make. But if we can complete that funnel in audio and by subscribing to a premium audio product, they also get the benefits of being a New Statesman subscriber in our other media types, then that's really interesting. Do you think there's a bit of a barrier there with people? Podcasts have been free for so, so long. Do you think people will be a bit more reluctant to pay for them? Or do you think that there's this general kind of acceptance that this stuff costs money to make? (laughs) I, and people yeah, need to I mean, start coughing up for it. Yeah, I really don't know, to be honest with you. And I was thinking about this. How do we structure a premium podcast offering that is enticing to people? Uh, it's something I don't have the answer to yet because I am genuinely concerned that, um, like, if we took, if we did what The Economist have done and took the majority of our podcasts behind a premium paywall, I think that might overtip the balance into for us into audience frustration rather than kind of adding value and having a value exchange yeah and i mean they've they haven't launched yet i think they're they're literally launching any day now and um yeah i think they're not nervous but they're definitely sort of going to watch it very very closely because they're yeah. they're keeping their their intelligence one which is their flagship podcast in front of mm. the paywall and they'll use that to kind of trail shows and stuff i will be watching um, what they yeah. do very closely <laughs> yeah so podcasts are something that we've spoken about for a number of years now. It's like something big publishers should be paying attention to. Um, it feels like there's been a little bit of a kind of hype cycle dip, crash this year, where quite a few companies have sort of scaled back on their podcasting efforts. Mm. Uh, is that something you see as kind of a longer term trend? Is that a bit of a blip we've had with the everything else going on in the world <laughs> that maybe podcasts have just been cut back? Or do you, and I'm aware you're quite biased, <laughs> Do you still see podcasts as something that publishers should be seriously considering investing in and a sort of long-term good play? Not a leading question in any sense. (laughs) Um, Two things about the dip, you know, if you call it a hype cycle dip, I think one, potentially you could take that as a sign of a maturing market. Mm -hmm. When something feels new and fresh, a lot of people want to get involved in it and maybe sort of treat it as an experiment, don't really have necessarily a strategy figure it out and then those that find it useful continue with it and those that don't you know stop so there's part of a cycle going on there isn't there where it's big it's new it's exciting there's a growth thing and then everyone sort of goes well it's not really working for us we're going to try something else and some people go well it's really working for us so we're going to double down on it um so there's that i think there's definitely something about like what's been going on for the last year or so um and there is a tightening of the purse strings in publishers all over the place. I, th- I think what that means is that CEOs and boards are looking at um, return on investment very closely. And I think in a boom period, it's fine to speculate. You know, you've got a bit extra, you can speculate in different areas, see what works, see what doesn't. But with a contraction, naturally, we all kind of look quite closely at where our profit margins are and what's costing us money what's bringing money in and then we adjust our strategies accordingly and so you know i mean for us that's been 
this if you if you like the the speculation bit is launching new feeds and the the kind of the, the contraction bit is well let's try doing it all in one feed and maximizing the return on investment that we're getting um you know we have the benefit of having a successful podcast that's been running for a long time already thanks to the work of people that have come before us so um that's a that's a real really beneficial position to be in if i was just starting a podcast department in a new organization that didn't yet have any audio and i wasn't yet seeing any return on investment for that then i wouldn't be surprised for to be getting a tap on the shoulder you know and sort of what, what do we do is this really the best use of our time you know so so how would you answer that <laughs> so imagine i'm a publisher i've got a podcast unit that's maybe not doing so great but i want to go into 2024 with a bang what what's your advice to someone doing that i think what it requires is really clear strategic thought from uh stakeholders at the very top of the business as well as the um individuals that are actually making the podcasts i think what it means is that you just have to be a lot clearer about what is it that we are hoping to get from this podcast and then thinking very carefully about how we're going to make sure that we maximize that return on investment so you know for different publishers that's going to be different things if it's purely a revenue play then you need to think really carefully about is your a, a is your is a podcast the best way to do that and b you need to bake in your monetization strategy from the outset and that probably means thinking really really hard about the most valuable audience that you can be going after and going hard after that if if it's about if you if you want to use podcasts as sort of a general reach strategy i don't think that is i don't think now is the right time to be doing that I don't think podcasts are the best way to get extended reach. I think they are a really good way to dig deep. And what I mean is you know, dig deep in a, in a specific audience. And so if you can do that well, then you can start to extract the value from that. And, you know, for example... One of the things that we're looking at very closely is not just our revenue, although that is very important. Another one of our big strategic goals is impact, particularly as we head into, uh, you know, 2024 and we're looking towards a general election and Labour in the ascendancy. The New Statesman is, you know, of the left. Um, so it's potentially a really interesting year coming for us. So for us, one of the things that we're looking at is the impact that we can have through all of our media forms, podcasts and video, as well as the magazine and the website. That is a, that is a, a, a strategic goal, um, and we need to figure out how we how we measure that. So my advice would be for podcast producers in publishers that are maybe feeling the pinch, have a really good think about what is it that your podcast is designed to achieve if it's not designed to achieve something that will drive measurable returns, then can you tweak your strategy to redirect it in that in that direction? I think one of the things publishers forget all the time is money. You know, like we did. It took us a couple of years to actually figure out how seven we years. Money from <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I think you're right. Having that commercial strategy baked in is a really big deal. Um, I also think that the, the the idea of developing not we overuse the word niche, but <clears throat> that kind of those super fans like super serve your super fans. I think it's a really big deal for podcasts because I do think there's a, there's a, there's got to be an amazing Venn diagram that brings together podcast listeners that are general podcast listeners, special episode listeners, newsletter subscribers, magazine subscribers, website visitors, drive-by That Venn diagram must be... We should figure that one out, Esther. Yeah. You should figure <laughs> that one out, Esther. <laughs> I just think that'd be an amazing Venn diagram. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think your point about it's you know podcasts aren't really about, and I think this, this has been a learning curve is that they're not about reach, and you can find new audiences, but you know you're not going to get hundreds of thousands of millions of listeners, but they're they're much more for developing that close relationship and that. Yeah, I, I know mm. a lot of people have said, oh, they're a great retention play, yeah, and that that's more where they sit rather than it's it's not a top of funnel thing really. Mm. Well, thanks so much to Chris for joining us. Where can we find you if you want to follow all your pearls of wisdom on what you're doing with the New Statesman podcasts? Uh, the best place to do that is LinkedIn. And I am LinkedIn at uh, Chris Stone TV. And if you really want to sort of uh, get some like, esoteric ramblings, then you can find me on Twitter or X or whatever it is. But, you know, oh, it's a bit... It's a bit rubbish now, isn't it? <laughs> and we will, of course, be dealing with podcasts as a chapter in our Media Moments 2023 report. You can pre-download that at voices.media slash mm23. And we have an AI event. Of course we do. MX3 AI is on the 7th of December in London. We're working with our good friends at MX3 to put this on. We'll be exploring all things AI, the opportunities for publishers, probably talking about some of the challenges, uh, the agenda will be coming soon, the next week or two, but you can go to mx3ai.com for more information as it comes out. I was about to start this section with, if you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, but what I, <laughs> <laughs> what I mean to say is that if you... if you Help is available. <laughs> if you want to chat about any of the points of race in this podcast, if you want to disagree with Chris, or if you've got experiences of your own to share with your own podcast strategy... We've actually got a community where we've got some podcast posts or you can start a podcast topic. Um, you can sign up to that over at voices.media. There's a community tab um, and we'd love to see you there. There's, um, there's quite a bit starting to go on. So until next week when we'll be discussing um, something else. <laughs> Organised as usual. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you then. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. Bye. We still need a sign-off. Yeah, do need a sign-off.